I'm going to go ahead and get started. There's a couple more people that are going to slip in here. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, I do have this cough. I've had it for almost three weeks. I don't think that I'm really contagious with anything anymore. I think it's just hanging out and doesn't want to go away. Um, so if you hear me coughing, don't be like, oh my goodness, he came to church You're so sick. I'm sick. sick. I, just, I feel good. I just have, I just can't get rid of this cough. It's, it's why I took a separate car. Today. That's why you took a separate car. Um, <laughs> so, um, we're continuing in uh, Philippians this morning. Um, we start with the introduction of Paul's greeting in Philippians and uh, verses 1 and 2 of Philippians 1. We're going to look at, this kind of a two-part one. I knew I'd have to break it up because uh, the next section, I think verses 8 through 10, are very jam-packed with good theology and stuff like that. Um, so I broke this into two parts. Paul's prayer, part 1, I'm calling this. So if you want to take a guess at what next week is, you can go ahead and do that. Um, so we'll be looking at uh, six verses today. I started out as five verses, but uh, verse... Oh, I didn't change it in the title. Okay, so yeah, it is uh, through verse eight. So if you're the type of person that needs your notes to be right, you can change the seven to an eight. Um, I added verse eight as I was studying and thought this one actually fits pretty good in here. I'm going to uh, add it in. So... Um, let's go ahead and pray, and then uh, we'll get started in the lesson. Um, Nathan, would you pray for us, please? Dear Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for being able to be here today and learn your word. I just pray that you keep that in your mind, and uh, I pray that you present uh, your word to us, and I uh, pray that you allow us to be attentive, uh, to listen, to learn a lot, and to apply to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, let's go ahead and read the passage. I have it up there. I, I wouldn't discourage you from having your Bibles open to Philippians because as we go through, um, you may have the passage, that, the verse that we're in may be on a different page than the rest of the notes, and so it might be helpful, but that's up to you. Um, so if somebody would want to read verses 3 through 8 of Philippians 1. Josiah, go ahead. So here as Paul opens his letters, he lets the Philippians know that he remembers them and that he is thinking of them. Um, I wrote out this introduction and I rewrote it several times, so I, I don't know if I'm going to follow it the rest of the way here. Um, but the idea seems to be as Paul's thinking about the Philippian church, here's some things that come to mind right away. Here's some things that, like first thoughts pop up. And if, if you want kind of an example of that, I'll ask you to think of someone in your life, someone you love, someone you care about, maybe a spouse, maybe a child, maybe a parent, maybe a brother or sister. Um, and if I were to ask you, what, what's the first things that come to mind when you think of that person? You know, what, think about what you would say. Um, I'll give my example. I'll, I'll use Sue because I can talk about her and she can't yell at me afterwards for saying something that I shouldn't have said. Um, you know, uh, one of the first things I think about Sue, you know, what do you think about Sue? I, I think of her passion. I think she's a, she was a very passionate person. She, she felt very deeply. She believed very deeply. Uh, I love that about her. Um, I also think that Sue, as a loving mom, and um, she was 
always excited about our kids, uh, and even, you know, thinking the future, a chance that she never got. Um, but she always looking forward to the grandbabies and being able to spoil them and stuff. I, I think of that. So um, I, I also think, you know, there, there's some things I think too that at times, uh, you know, she, um, <coughs> excuse me, she was, she was very critical of things at times too. So I could, I could think of some things that maybe aren't as complimentary or whatever. And, that, and sometimes that's good. Sometimes it, it was hard to kind of uh, explain yourself or say, this is what I was thinking the situation because she just she was very critical of things that I did at times and that was hard at times. So I, I think of some good things, some bad things here. Um, and this is Paul talking here. And as I read through different commentaries and stuff, I had one commentary say, this section is about Thanksgiving. This is all about Thanksgiving. Well, as I read through it, I don't see that it's all about Thanksgiving. It starts out with Thanksgiving. That's kind of a big focus. Um, another commentator said, this is about Paul's joy, what he has joy in. And again, there's joy mentioned in here. I think it's just him, he's writing to the Philippians, he's saying, as I'm thinking about you now, these are, these are things that I think, these are things, and I, I put it at the last sentence of my introduction, that these points be read as Paul has, and maybe blah, 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 for the Philippian church, or because of the Philippian church. So that's the way we're going to kind of approach, I did it already, that's the way we're going to approach it this morning. I'm going to try not to give any feedback here, and feedback through the speakers. Um, so um, let's go ahead and just dig in. We'll look at Philippians 1.3. I'll read the Philippians 1 verses because we already read those, so I'll just reiterate them. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. So the first thing we see from Paul is Paul has thanksgiving for the Philippian church. Oops. And I have no spell check and just saying no ability to write correctly. Okay. Thanksgiving. Um, again, I said that um, one commentator said this is about Paul's Thanksgiving. And I, again, I don't, I see kind of a different flow here than that. But I do want to highlight that we ought to be thankful always, right? So Paul is probably thankful even as he's going through these things. But he starts out, the first thing, the emphasis, the first thing he says to them after the greeting is, I thank my God. I thank him upon every remembrance of you. So this very strong first point, like the first thing he wants to say is, I am thankful for you guys. I'm thankful because of what God's doing for you. I think that speaks a lot. When you're talking to somebody, and um, we kind of have two ways of dealing with things. Sometimes you get the, the first big point first, Right? This is what I really want to tell you. This is what I really want to get through to you. I think that's what Paul's doing here. I know sometimes we, we save the big point for last. We do this, this, this. But, you know, finally, this is, this is huge. So Paul, in this case, I think is using the idea, the first thing I think of, the first remembrance I have, when I think about you, the first idea that comes to mind is that I am thankful. I am thankful for you. So the direction of this thanksgiving is to God. Paul realizes that, the reason he's thankful for them is because of what God is doing, what God has done in this church. And he can look at that, and he's going to talk about different <coughs> concerns, different other things here. But throughout this all, you can see God's working in the church. And Philippians, again, this is one of those churches. Uh, they, they seem to be not a huge church, but they seem to be a church that was walking the, the ways of God and, 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 for the most part, doing what's right. And so... Paul has a lot to be thankful here, that God's working in their life, that he, they're spiritually maturing Christians, they're, they're doing the things they're supposed to be doing. Again, we should be thankful no matter what. God, uh, Paul um, 
we'll see in a second, he, he starts out with the Corinthians church that he's thankful for them, and they certainly were not walking in the ways that they should walk. They were doing lots of things wrong, letting sin go. They were to have contentions within themselves. So it's not solely because of the reason the Philippians were doing what's right. They're thankful, but Paul is thankful for his church. Um, and the interval is among every remembrance of them. Anytime he thinks about them, anytime the thought comes up, he has this thanksgiving for this church. Um, the word remembrance could also be mentioned. Anytime that someone said, hey, hear anything from the church in Philippi? Oh, I'm so thankful for them. You know, that's the first thing that probably comes to his mind is that he is thankful for what God is doing in them. And then letter C here, I gave you other letters that he begins with Thanksgiving. Again, we said 1 Corinthians already. Uh, Colossians he does. Uh, 1 Thessalonians. Uh, these are all letters to different churches. Um, 2 Timothy and Philemon are letters to individual people where he's thankful for individuals. So Paul uses this theme a lot that he begins a letter, I thank my God for you. I think I'm thankful for what's going on here. Um, and you see that attitude of thankfulness from Paul. Um, we're going to share a verse a little bit later, so I'm going to hold off on saying what I thought I was going to say here. So first thing, I think a pretty easy concept to get, he's thankful. He has thanksgiving for the church. Philippians 1.4 says, Always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. So I have this as concern. And Paul has concern. Now, we, we use concern as a lot of times like, um, I have a car right now. It was overheating. They fixed uh, one of the coolant pipes that goes to the engine core. I got it back, and as I was driving around after about 10 minutes of driving, it didn't seem to want to get out of second gear. That concerns me. You know, we use concern in a way that's like, oh, this is bad. I'm concerned about it. Here, I'm, I'm using concern in a kind of different way. This is Paul's concern, his caring for the church. These are things, and Paul doesn't give specifics yet. We're going to see specifics when we get to next week, when we get to verse 9. Um, but Paul... Paul sees them and says, here's needs, here's things I need to be praying for you about, here's what I want God to be working in your life. I, I'm concerned about you. I'm concerned about your growth. I want you to continue growing. I want you to continue to do what's right. So there's concern. Um, I get this from the, the idea of, uh, he says, always in every prayer. Um, the prayer, the, the word prayer, this is a request, or, yeah, this is a request, an entreaty or supplication. <coughs> And when we have concerns, our natural first action as Christians should be to go to God in prayer. And let's look at Philippians 4, 6 through 7, same book a little bit later. Do you have a reader for that? Nathan, go ahead. So when we're anxious, when we, when we have uh, any concerns, when we, when we have a situation we're unsure about, the Bible says don't be anxious about it. Give everything God in prayer. In prayer and supplication. Supplication is a more specific term just for asking, for pleading for something. Um, make your request, let your request be known to God. Go to God with it. That would be our first step here. And, and, and Paul, again, I, I don't know that there's like specific issues that Paul's thinking of with the Philippians or if he's just concerned in general that I'm, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for your growth. I'm praying you do what's right. I'm praying you handle the persecution you're under. Um, 
He's going to God and making those requests to God on behalf of the church. And, and back in Philippians 4 there, the, and we're going to talk about this more, of course, when we get there, the result of prayer is that God's peace is on us. And it's going to guard our heart and mind. And so, you know, when Paul was maybe thinking about the Philippian church, or a smaller church there in this city, again, remember, with all the idolatry and all the persecution, you know, maybe Paul's concerns are they're not going to be able to handle that. They're going to, they're going to fall into the persecution. And it's, going to, it's going to break up the church. There won't be anybody left. So he prays about it. It gives us concerns to God and say, God, protect this church, strengthen the church, help them do us right, help them to respond to the persecution correctly. I, you know, these, are, these are kind of thoughts. I don't know if that's really what Paul's praying, but those could be things like that. He's praying because he's concerned about the church and where they're going. Now, how often does he pray? It says, uh, verse 1-4 uh, starts out with always, the idea of at all times. Now, does this mean that Paul is praying 24-7, 365? Probably not. Um, as he's writing this letter, he's, the way we understand, he's probably dictating a letter and somebody's writing it down. And so he's probably talking. And if Paul's a guy like me, and I think, you know, we put Paul up as the superstar apostle, same status, but he's a man. He's not going to be able to do the two things at once, right? Because that's also men don't do that. So I'm sure that he's not praying as he's dictating this letter. However, the idea is that as often as he prays, whenever he's praying, he's always praying for this church because he loves them and cares about them. And then it says, always in every prayer, and this is almost like repeating the same thing over. I'm always in every prayer, I'm praying for you guys. And every prayer, each, each single prayer that he has, he's, he's uh, praying for the Philippians. Now, think about all the churches that Paul's ministered to, all the people that he's ministered to and ministered with. I imagine that Paul's not having a three-minute prayer time and being done with it. I'm, I, when Paul prays, I'm, I'm guessing he's praying thoroughly and, and, and you know, it's a long ex time period because he's, if he's praying for all of his churches, all the people he's ministered to, it's going to take him a while to get through that. Um, so Paul's commitment to prayer is probably much greater than even any of us have in our life that we probably lack as compared to what Paul's doing. So what is he doing? He's making requests for them all. So he's requesting on their behalf. He's requesting that God would work. He's requesting for God's good in their life. And he says, uh, making requests for you all, for every one of them. This word all is the same word as uh, each one of them. Um, every, every prayer, it's always, um, Always in all prayers of mine, making requests for you all. So it's, it's kind of these same words over and over here that he's doing it all the time. Every time I pray, I'm praying for each and every one of you. I'm praying for you all. Um, and then he's also requesting with joy. I think sometimes, you know, and I, I see this a lot with, with younger kids too. You, you get them and you ask them to pray and they're like, oh, I have to pray. And maybe as Christians, sometimes we feel that way. We get this, oh, I have to pray now. No, it's my turn to pray. Praying should be a joyful thing to do. It's, it's talking to God. It's making your request to him, knowing that he's listening and he cares about you. Paul found it a joy to pray for the believers. He's making these requests with all joy. He's filled with rejoicing for the chance to speak to God on behalf of the believers of the church. So Paul has thanksgiving for this church. He has concern for this church. 
Philippians 1.5 says, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. He has a commonality with the church. I could have, but I didn't. I'll try not to breathe on my mic like that. Okay. Um, it says, for your fellowship in the gospel. The fellowship word here is, and again, I don't give a lot of Greek works out, but every once in a while I have one that's either a pretty well-known word or something that maybe we should know. This is koinonia. Um, it means a fellowship, a close mutual relationship, a participation, a sharing in, a partnership. The word communion is also this word. Um, so you have this fellowship in the gospel. They have a commonality. They have a partnership. They have a, a close mutual relationship in the gospel. Um, there's a couple of thoughts as to what people think this means. Um, one of them is that they just have a common gospel that they believe. We have the same gospel, so we have a commonality, we have a fellowship in that. I think, I think it runs more along this partnership idea that in some ways uh, the, the Philippians were helping out Paul, helping him along with the gospel, helping maybe his overall goal of reaching the world, that they're going out with the gospel too. They're sharing it also. I think certainly, and one commentator brought this up, we see later that the Philippians were one of the churches that regularly and faithfully supported Paul in his ministry. So even in that sense, they were sharing in Paul's burden to, to keep him going, to keep him uh, doing his mission. You know, one of the reasons why we as a church have decided to support a couple missionaries is because we want to support people that are sharing the gospel and are reaching the lost for Christ. And the missionaries will say, You're, they'll come in and say this, and when they make their presentations, we want you to partner with us. And they'll always say, well, you know, first of all, we want you to pray for us. And if that's all you do, that's great. And that's, that's true. Um, I was with Baptist Missions for a couple of years. We, we love that people were praying for us. And if that's all they could do, that's wonderful. But they're also saying, you, you can partner with us by giving to help our support. And that's, that's also true, by, by sacrificing so that they can preach the gospel, so that they can bring the gospel to other people. That's part of this fellowship, I think. So they have a commonality in the gospel. That's the gospel that creates this commonality between Paul and the Philippians. And it's, it's a commonality, I think, in the mission. Um, looking at, um, I, I put some verses in there. I don't think I have any of them except for 2 Corinthians. Oh, no, I do have them all here. I can't even read my own notes. Okay, that's good. Um, so there's a commonality. 1 Corinthians 1, 9. I need a reader. Lynn, go ahead. God is So the, the commonality begins with the calling that we have in Christ, that we're, uh, by our faith in Jesus Christ, that we're brought into one body. It's, it's a, common, uh, a common relationship we have with each other. That's probably the best word, a common relationship we have because of what Christ has done. We're in the fellowship of his son. He's called us into that fellowship. He's brought us in that we have that communion with each other, we have that sharing, that partnership with each other because of what Christ has done. Um, 1 John 1, 7, another verse. Who wants to read? Josiah, go ahead. So we have a fellowship because of what Christ has done. We also have a fellowship as we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, as we walk in the light, as he is in the light. 
that draws our fellowship in closer and, and brings us into better fellowship with each other. So there's, there's part of that that's on us that we need to be walking the way God wants us to walk in fellowship with, um, with him so that we can have fellowship with one another so that we can have that relationship. Um, and that's 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Elizabeth, go ahead. So this is, this is a benediction of 2 Corinthians and Paul saying, this is what I want for you. This is what I'm praying for you. This is what I'm hoping you have. And you notice there he talks about that the grace of your Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and then the communion, the fellowship, the sharing of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's, God wants us to have this uh, commonality, this fellowship, this community that we have. So when Paul thinks of the Philippian church, Paul has thanksgiving. He has concern. He has commonality with them. Uh, number four, in Philippians 1, 6, we say, Paul goes on and says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete until the day of Jesus Christ. Call this one confidence. So he has confidence. And his confidence here is um, the word confident is to be persuaded. He is convinced. He is, has no doubts about what's going to happen here. His confidence here is in God. Um, a lot of times we say that, uh, well, what's, what's the confidence? The confidence that, well, that, that we're going to turn out okay, that God's going to mature. No, the confidence is in God and what he's doing and God and his work. Galatians 3.3. 3. Nathan, go ahead. Okay, so the first thing I want you to do is understand when you see that word perfect, a lot of context, that's mature, okay? Are you being made mature? Are you being complete? Because um, some of you might say, well, I'm not perfect. I'm probably never going to be perfect. That's this side of heaven. Okay, let me put a disclaimer on that. As long as I'm on earth here, I'm not going to be perfect. That's probably true. Um, but God's completing you. He's, he's maturing you. And here, this verse tells us that if you've begun in the Spirit, however you saved, you're saved, saved by the work of the Spirit in you, right? Through faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit regenerated you. Well, how are you going to live? Are you going to go back to living under your own power? Are you going to go back to living by uh, your own means? Or are you going to live by the Spirit's power and what he's doing in your life? And so it's God who's working in you to mature you. Uh, Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Who would like to read Go ahead, Ted. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in both you, in you both, to will and to do his good pleasure. This is one of my favorite passages to go to when somebody would ask the question, well, who's, who's supposed to be doing the work of sanctification. Is it me or is it God? And the answer is yes. Uh, because in verse 12 it says that work out your own salvation. We understand salvation here is not being saved. This is the salvation, the sanctification process of being sanctified. Um, but then verse 13, and that's what I want to focus on here, for it is God who works in you. So you're supposed to work out your own salvation, but God is working in you. God's completing this work to make you sanctified, to make you holy, to make you complete and mature. 
It's God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. So that you become the person God wants you to be and you do the things that God wants you to do. So Paul is confident in what God is doing in the Philippian church and the believers' lives individually that he, um, and we're going to talk about this in a second, that he who has begun a good work, that God began a good work in them. Well, how did he begin the good work in him and, and the Philippian believers? I'm, I'm asking here. How did God, what's the first thing God did? What's his first good work in the life of a believer? Yeah, it starts with salvation, right? He's begun that with their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Romans 8.29. Uh, let me go on, because I'm actually in the next section. I skipped ahead here. So God's begun this good work, and he's, Paul is confident that God's going to complete that good work, that that's God's plan, that's God's working in us. Now, on earth, does that mean that any believer that no believer can get off track and can kind of not go... No, that can happen, right? So there's a good work that's completed somewhere along the way. Romans 8.29, I think, gives us a hint of that. Who would like to read 8.29 and 30? Jonathan, go ahead. Okay, so give me, there's kind of five steps in here of what God has done. What's the first thing that we see? He foreknew, thank you. Is it with an E there? I don't remember. Yeah, it is, okay. So what does foreknow mean? That's no before, good. Thank you, use the word for the definition. In advance, God understands who's going to go through this process, right? Um, we talked about, you talked about in the sermon when Paul uh, talked about that, um, and now I'm drawing a blank here, but that Paul was chosen before the foundation of the world to be in Christ, right? So God knows. God knows you're going to be here. God knows if you have trusted Christ, that you've trusted Christ. God knows who all we all are. Now, Again, this is really complicated because we start thinking about God's eternity um, and just how God is really not bound by time. He's outside of time. It, it really blows our mind a little bit. But anyway, it's, it's true. He, he knows everything that's going on. So he foreknew what, what's next. Those he foreknew. Now this gives people problems. And the problem it gives is, does God force some people to be saved and some people not be saved because there's people predestined? Well, I think in this context, at least, this passage is not teaching that that's what it means by predestined. What are they predestined to? To be informed to his... This is very important in what we're talking about here, that he's going to complete... Okay. To the image of his son. Okay. Um, as we're talking about, he's going to complete a good work. Well, how is he going to complete a good work? Well, he's predestined those who he foreknew already that were going to be saved. He's already predestined them that 
they are going to be conformed to the image of a son. Well, how does that happen? I know I'm not conformed to the image of a son right now. I know I have sin issues still that I'm working on in my life. I know that there's things that I don't meet what God wants me to do right now. And while I'm hoping that it progresses forward and forward, I don't see a time when there's not things that may be sin issues I have to deal with in my life. So let's go on a little bit. Those who predestined, he called. What does it mean to be called? Okay. Called could be to be given a task. That's, I think, in some contexts, yes, I would go with that. What does it mean to be called here? No, because he called. He's not calling on his own name. Right? Okay. So, um, so what does called mean here? Who does the work of salvation? Is it us or God? Okay, who is the one who reveals Christ in our hearts? Is it us or the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit. So this idea of calling is the God reaching out to us, right? Now, I think God offers that call to all men. I think that salvation is available for all men. But in this, this scenario, it's just talking about the four new ones, and we're going to see in just a second who those are. Those were definitely called because they answered the call. They trusted Christ as their Savior, right? Okay, so next is those who are called are justified. What does justified mean? Let me ask this a different way. Who is justified? Why are believers justified? Because they're saved. Okay, and that provides what? What's justification? Yeah, this is, this is the idea of they are pronounced righteous. They're pronounced holy. Now, again, who is that? That's people who are saved, right? That's, if you and I have trusted Christ, that's us. Again, I go back to, do I have sin issues in my life? Yes. Ask Nathan. Ask Abigail. Ask, Olivia's not here today. You can ask, ask any of them. You know, usually we say, ask your wife, but obviously I can't do that. So uh, um, you can ask them. I have sin issues in my life. I have problems, right? So I'm not acting justified 100% of the time. But I stand justified before God because of Christ's death on the cross, which not only paid for my sins, but provided his righteousness for us. So justified. And then those people are what? Thank you. What does that mean? Okay, I'm gonna, uh, that's a good answer, perfect answer. I'm going to sum this up in our passage here. This is, he will complete it. The good work he's completing, that's, that's a glorification thing. That's future. Now, interestingly enough, in this passage, guess what tense these verbs are all in? I'm just trying to think that my brain's... Yeah, it's past tense. It's called justified. There, you are glorified. 
Well, how are you glorified? Again, I don't act glorified. I'm not complete in Christ. I'm not mature. How are you? You're positionally glorified. God knows that's going to happen. That's, good. that's going to be the end result here. So Paul has great confidence in order that he can say that the one who started a good work in you is going to complete it. He's confident of that because it's true. It's true in us positionally. And it's going to be true of us in the future. And so, um, so th- until the day of Jesus Christ, so that he gives the, the, the answer, when is this going to happen? When is God going to complete this work? It's the day of Jesus Christ. Um, so when Christ returns, uh, the work continues in us until this time. Now hopefully, as we're trying to be obedient, we're getting closer and closer each and every day. But the completion happens when Christ returns for us. Uh, the work will continue in us until this time. And then once Christ returns, there's going to be no need to work in this fashion to mature us, to complete us, because we're going to be complete in Christ once Christ returns. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53. Who would like to read? Nathan, go ahead. So here, it talks about that we're not going to sleep. We're not all going to just be dead, okay? That's kind of the idea he's getting at here. We're all going to be changed. And this happens at the last trumpet when Christ returns, that we're all going to be changed. The incorruptible, or the corruptible will put on incorruptible. The mortal will put on immortal. We're going to be made complete in Christ. Uh, so that's one passage that talks about that. First John 3, 2. Another reader? Who would like to read? Okay, go ahead, Lynn. Let's talk about Christ. Has Christ been revealed yet? And the answer should be no. He's still in heaven. He's still at the right hand of the Father. He hasn't come back and revealed himself. But when he is revealed, John tells us that we are going to be like him. That he's going to complete that work in us. So, so Paul has great confidence in what God is doing and what God is working in the Philippian believer, even to the point of saying that, you know, you've trusted Christ as your Savior, therefore someday you're going to get down here and you're going to be Glorified. In fact, it's so certain I can say in the past tense in Romans, he's writing the Romans there, but I can say in the past tense that you already are glorified because that's how certain that is. So Paul has thanksgiving, he has concern, he has commonality, he has confidence in them. And number five, this one didn't quite fit right, so I had to add words, but um, a proper attitude. Proper attitude. First, uh, Philippians 1, 7 through 8 says, Just as it is right for me to think of this of you all, <coughs> because I have you in my heart, and as much as both in my chains and in defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. So he starts by saying, this, Just as this is right for me to think, this word right, and I'm going to quote John MacArthur here from his commentary, because he did it much better than I could say it. Um, these rights, this word right denotes more than mere appropriateness. It expresses moral and spiritual rightness. 
not merely that which is expected, but that which is required. And so Paul's saying this, these things, he's saying just as it is right for me to think this of all you, so all these things he's talked about, being thankful, praying for them, uh, having, uh, what's the third one here, having the commonality, having confidence in them, all these things are right things for me to think. So this is what God wants me to think. This is the uh, mindset he wants me to have. So the rightness of his prayers, uh, it's right to think about these things, um, these previous things, the thanksgiving, the concern, the commonality, the confidence. kind of said that already. Uh, he has a heartfelt concern also. He says, it's right to me to think these things, but he has, says, I have you in my heart. So he has a heartfelt concern. And this is something that we see often in Paul's writings. Um, Paul often... Uh, writes about this. So 1 Thessalonians 2.8. Need a reader? Go ahead, Josiah. So So here he talks about being affectionately longing for them. He, he's desiring the best for them. Um, and then he ends up and says, you have become dear to us. You have become close to us, important to us. Uh, we care deeply for you. And then as you read through this, he says, not only did we give you the gospel of God, but we gave you our own lives. We, we did everything we could for you. Um, there's, there's a sacrificial long that they had. It's interesting, I didn't put the verse in here, but the previous verse, verse 7, discusses how just as a mother cares for a nursing child, so Paul cared for these believers in, in Thessalonica. And uh, you think about the image of a mother with a child and a nursing child and how you know, the mother nourishes and the mother cares and feeds and changes the poopy diapers and all that kind of stuff. You know, the child is in terrible need and the mother is there uh, to, to do what needs to be done. But you also think about how a mother loves her child and cares about her child. And that's kind of the relationship Paul had there. So he had a heartfelt concern for them. Um, he had a common work with them. So it talks about in Paul's chains. Now this is a kind of difficult phrase, I think, here. Um, as much as both in my chains. So the first thing he talks about is chains. And we have to remember, Paul's in prison right now, right? This is his first imprisonment. He's in Rome under house arrest. Um, so in some way, it seems that the uh, Philippian church here is sharing in Paul's affliction with him. Um, and maybe, maybe they're, they're hurting for Paul. Maybe they're uh, participating in this. Or maybe there's a common persecution going on that they share in Paul's affliction. We see this often enough in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 6, 1, uh, 1, 6-7. can't talk, so I need a reader for that. Who would like to read? I know we don't have a big group here, so that's going to allow you to do a lot of reading today. So a couple of interesting phrases in this verse. If we are afflicted, it's for your consolation and salvation. Um, a part of what Paul's going through, he says, this is for you because you're going to run into affliction yourself. And I think the idea here is that you have Paul as an example. You see how Paul has acted 
and suffered and served the Lord through his suffering. But also he talks about consolation, that if we're comforted then, you know, we can also come by and comfort you. And we can participate in that comforting. And then in verse 7, it says, you are partakers of the suffering. Uh, we know that as you are partakers of the suffering, so there's kind of a common suffering for the cause of Christ, that as you're doing what God wants you to do, Paul says there's an expectation that you're going to face some persecution because of that. There's a commonality of that. Um, but if you're also partakers of the, the suffering, you're also going to be partakers of the consolation. So there's a benefit there too. Um, so we see that verse, and then in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13, who would like to read? Josiah wants to. I, I can see he's looking around going, I don't want to take anybody else's turn, but I'll do it. <laughs> So the point I want to make from this verse is that when we do suffer for the sake of Christ, there is a sense that we are sharing in Christ's sufferings. So if that's true, and it is because it's in the Bible, um, if Paul's suffering and the Philippians are suffering, they're partaking of the same suffering because they're all partaking in Christ's sufferings. And so there is a commonality of that. And I think that's where he's getting to in uh, Philippians 1 here, that you share as much both by change, you know, the persecution he's going through, you guys share in that. And maybe specifically that, again, this is a city where Christianity wasn't really tolerated at this time, so maybe some of them were in chains, actually. Some of them may have been imprisoned, and they're sharing the same commonality as Paul has um, very specifically. But I think in a sense, too, just the suffering he's going through that the church shares in that. Um, and then he also says, and this one's a little easier, uh, in defense and confirmation of the gospel. So um, in Paul's gospel ministry, and he uses two words. Uh, defense is a, a, the word we get, apology or apologetics. It has the idea of a speech given in defense of. And so it's even uh, what uh, uh, Dr. Cobelia talked about this morning, one of his points at the end there, remember, is to defend the gospel. This is the idea that Paul says you're sharing in that. You're sharing in the defense of the gospel. You're, you're standing. You're making a defense for what the word of God says. What is the truth? And then a confirmation. This is a positive confirmation of the truth of the gospel. So this could be in words, but could also be in actions for them. Remember that if Christ saves them, and again, if the gospel changes people, like Paul was changed, and these Philippian believers were changed, they're going to see that there's a confirmation of the gospel as they're living a different life, as they're living a different way. So they're not serving the false gods anymore. As they're showing a Christian love and compassion for people, it's going to be a confirmation that the gospel is working, that it's doing what it's supposed to be doing. So there's a defense and there's a confirmation of the gospel that Paul shares with them. Um, and then at the end of verse 7, he talks about, you're all partakers of me of grace. And we talked a lot about grace last week, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but... Paul says we share in the same grace from God, the same grace I have, the same grace you have. And I think that's an encouraging thing because, again, like I, I get into the habit of thinking about Paul and looking at him and going, wow, that guy was awesome. He really was pretty cool, did everything God wanted him to do. He was serving faithfully. If I could only be half the person that Paul does is, man, I would be doing good. And that's sometimes the attitude I get. We have the same grace from God. We can do what Paul does because Paul's doing it under God's power. And God can use us the same way, and maybe not the exact same way. I don't expect you to go to Macedonia and go you know, share the gospel with people there necessarily. 
But we can certainly live our lives for Christ just as faithfully as Paul did because we have that grace from God. Um, and then finally, the divine, uh, a divine compassion he has. Um, he says, uh, verse 8, For God is my witness how greatly I long for you with all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Uh, the word affection here, this is literally bowels or intestines. And we hear that and we go, okay, that's weird. That's how the Greek people thought that back then. Um, your emotions were set in your intestines. And, and this kind of makes some sense because whenever you get a little fearful, you get a little hesitant, your stomach gets a little upset, right? So you, you kind of feel it there. I think that's maybe where it comes from. Um, but anyways, he's saying that this is just a deep affection. We would say our heart, you know, he, I long for you with the heart of Jesus Christ. Um, you know, this is, this is an affection given to him by God, by Jesus Christ for this church. And Paul has a great, deep caring and affection, a compassion for this church. And he cares very deeply about them. And I think it's evident that he's writing them this letter saying, hey, okay, here's things I want you to know because I care about you. I want you to do what God wants you to do. Let me give you some instruction. Let me let you know. Let me tell you what you're supposed to be doing, how you're supposed to be acting, what attitudes you're supposed to have. He cares enough about them. Um, you know, in many of his letters, he talks about how he, he hopes that he can come and see different churches and be with them because he does have that compassion for people. And that's something I think we need to have. So my takeaways, again, I'm probably not going to cover everything that we could take away here, but I, I think a couple of good points. Um, the first one is right and good to be praying for one another. Just as Paul says, just as it's right for me to think of you all this way, part of what he was thinking for was his prayers for them. And so I think we, we need to be better at praying for one another. As Christians, we share so much in common. There's a lot of common stuff in here that we talked about today. And we should care about each other because of that. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I'm going to need two more readers. So, Ted, go ahead. You see how many times one is in there and how many times all is in there in this passage here? Do you get the sense that we're in this together, we're put together, we're, we're one group, we ought to have one mission, we ought to have one desire, we ought to be working together, encouraging, building up one another? We need to be praying for each other. That's going to help develop that. And so that oneness that we have ought to lead us for a compassionate prayer for one another. Um, so that's number one there. Uh, number two, God wants us to be thankful to him. Uh, I get that mainly from the first point, but God wants us to be thankful to him. Even at times when circumstances are not going our way or times when we are hurting or discouraged, we can be thankful to God. Now remember, Paul was in prison when he wrote this, yet he begins a letter. His first big statement is, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, right? Well, Paul could have been like, opened up and said, hey, look, I'm in prison here. Things stink. Um, this is not how I envision things to go. You know, you guys need to be praying for me. You guys need to be praying that God would get me out of here so I can do what I'm supposed to be doing because this is just not where I want to be. He could have started that way. Of course, that would have been the wrong way to start. That wouldn't have been under inspiration of God. I understand all that. But he starts with a thanksgiving. I thank God for on every remembrance of you. 
but Paul, your situation's bad. It doesn't matter. He's thankful to God. So we need to be thankful to him. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Again, if you want an easy passage to memorize that gives you a lot of good application, this is a great one. Elizabeth, go ahead. Again, I, I've, I know I've said this over and over, and you're probably, half of you probably know what I'm going to say. Somebody comes and asks me, what's the will of God in my life? What does God want me to do? You know, there's a couple of places in the Bible where it actually spells it out. This is one of them, to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. And again, you look at that in everything, in all things, no matter what's going on, no matter what your circumstances are, no matter how good or how bad things are, God wants you to give thanks. And that is his will for you. And so Paul starting out by giving thanks for the Philippians is actually more like, uh, well, Paul, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Okay. But that's how it should be. We should be such a thankful people that that's just what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, finally, God is working in you. As we submit to the Holy Spirit and obey what God commands, God is working in us and through us to bring us into maturity and conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Again, that's going to happen eventually, right? Paul's confident that this is all going to happen. So if we're going to end up there anyways, let's work there. We need to respond in obedience to God. Let's be stepping forward, keeping moving forward in holiness and, and, and sanctification for God. That ought to be a goal of ours. Uh, this passage does talk quite a bit that he who completes a good work, in you, or he who started a good work, and you will complete it uh, until the day of Jesus Christ. So any thoughts or questions? Okay, about 50 minutes. That'd be pretty good. Okay. Uh, Josiah, will you close us in prayer, please? Thank you.